two frames. Now, if I really thought that was a serious picture, I would have shot like a roll of film in those days. It was a throwaway thing. I looked in, saw this thing, took the picture and then left. I gave, I gave um, this very famous calligrapher, Ahmed Mustafa, Ahmed Mustafa, who is from Egypt, and I was going to visit him one day, and I took him a print of that. And he looked at it and he said, oh, I think that picture's got um, golden ratio, you know, divine proportion. And I said, what's that? And he said, didn't you ever study art? I said, no, I didn't. Yeah, I'm self-taught. I don't use the word convert because I think it's very confusing for, for people who aren't Muslim because it kind of, as an outsider, it sounds like you were something and you became something else. And I've ne I never felt that. I've always felt that I'm the same person. Maybe I um, modified the way I live, but inside I'm still the same person. I didn't become something different. And I think that's confusing for people, especially if if the person who's become a Muslim suddenly starts dressing like an Arab or a Asian yeah. or something. You know, that for, for a Western, that's really confusing. And, and I think it's an important message to put out. You're not, you don't become a different person. You're the same person. Mm -hmm. And many of them had never been photographed before. Many of them... Um, passed away after I did the picture, which was very disconcerting for me. I thought, well, if the word gets out, you know, like, <laughs> it's so arrogant to think that I had any power over everything. And I met Dr. Mustafa Badawi in Medina, and he said, no, no, that's the reason they let you take their picture. They were leaving. So it didn't matter anymore. You know, I, I prefer people because they're just so fascinating, but it's harder for me for people because I'm quite a shy person and I don't, it's kind of, you have to get over that because people being photographed usually are very nervous anyway. I'll never forget him. His name was Artie Rip and he was the head of Buddha Records and he wore like a, you know, a cowboy hat and he came into the flat and he knew that I was interested in photography and he said, and he, had, he, had, he sort of produced this silver box and he said, what do you think about this? And he opened the silver box and there was like, there was a Nikon camera body and a, and a Canon and there were lenses and I was like, wow, that's amazing. A scholar said that there were, Muslims in this country had three choices. So it was um, isolation, assimilation or integration. Isolation is not acceptable because we're, we're a community led people and Assimilation means that you become part of the society, but you lose your core beliefs. And I really, and integration is the middle path. I know people don't like this word, but it's really, it's in the middle. And I think it's the best description because, and you know, I also am guilty of that because in the early years I was traveling all the time and I left my wife looking after, we had, you know, I had uh, my son from previous marriage and three daughters and you know, she really looked after them. I mean, I used to come back and uh, and it was difficult, you know, being away from them, but I was doing my thing. And it was funny, yeah, I was, I'm sorting out all my stuff in the loft and I found all these postcards that I'd sent to the girls when they were very young. And I showed it to my daughter and she said, we always used to think that you went away and forgot about us. And that it, it was very clear that I did, but they were too young to read them. So my wife would have read them to them. But, you know, like it, it was kind of, oh, you didn't forget us. You didn't just go away and forget us, you know. It was just like, and it was, you know, it was 
it's easy, but I needed to do it. This was my, you know, my uh, was my livelihood and what I was doing on my journey. So, yeah, it's. It, I think that's probably the biggest sacrifice. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to the Muslim Centric Podcast, where we hope to educate, inspire, and entertain on issues relevant to Muslim life. I'm your host, Aman. This episode is a Desert Island Gems interview where I ask my guests to imagine they are cast away to a desert island with eight gems of wisdom which have been important throughout their life journey. My guest is the world-renowned photographer of the Muslim world, Sidi Peter Sanders. If you don't recognise his name, you will have definitely seen his photos. Born in the 1940s in London, he became a professional photographer and took iconic pictures of Jimi Hendrix, Bob Dylan, the Rolling Stones and many more bands of the 1960s. He converted to Islam and took the early photos of the Hajj and has been taking photos ever since. Brother Peter Sanders has produced books which contain photos that will literally take your breath away. I'll list some of these books in the episode notes, including his most recent one, Exemplars for Our Time. In this episode, I ask him about his early life, how he became a photographer, his conversion to Islam, art and culture in Islam, and the art of spirituality. Please do support the podcast by subscribing to our YouTube channel, leaving a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcast, and spreading the word to friends and family. Inshallah, it'll help others benefit from the podcast. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy the interview. Assalamu alaikum, Sidi Peter Sanders. Wa alaikum salam, Thank you so much for joining us today. And hopefully we'll be sharing some insights and insight particularly into your life and your journey so far. And it's such a fascinating journey indeed. Um, so really privileged that you're joining us um, from your home uh, before you go off to many other travels. I think uh, you are traveling so much. Um, so mashallah, may Allah give you the strength to keep going and uh, traveling across the world. Amen, inshallah. Okay. Um, Sidi Peter, could, could I just maybe start off at the beginning and a bit about your early life and your childhood? Could you just tell us a little bit in terms of what was your early childhood like? Uh, I was an only child. Um, um, what else can I say about it? I, I think, you know, on looking back, I, I had a very strong connection with my grandfather. And I discovered this was after, actually he died when I was 16. He was in, a, in an accident uh, crossing the road. Um, but the previous years with, with, her, with him, I felt he was always like nurturing me. Um, I discovered, as I said later, after he passed away, that he, were, he had been a photographer during a lot of his life. And I didn't know anything about that part of his life. Um, but when I knew him, he was uh, one of the things he did was he collected stamps from around the world and he used to share these stamps with me and I think what he was doing was um, nurturing me into the love of travel and also the love of images because I don't know if you've ever looked at postage stamps but they're like a concise you know they're, they're very you know a lot of time goes into producing them and designing them 
and I was fascinated by all these countries, the Commonwealth countries around the world, and he definitely opened that thing up in me. So was there quite a desire at an early age to travel and to see the world? I was curious about it, yeah. I remember someone came and gave me a present from Scandinavia. It's a carved horse, and they are very typical of, I think, Sweden. But I remember, like, that moment when they gave it to me, oh, this is from another country outside of England, and just, oh, I was curious, I wonder where it... You know, so they always had this fascination about other other worlds yeah and you mentioned that you were an only child do you think that was then significant in developing a love of photography I guess it's something that you could do in your own time and yeah I think so I was used to spending time on my own it didn't it didn't bother me and just going off to India on my own which I did in um, 70 71 by myself was not a big problem you know yeah I, I was kind of testing myself a little bit I yeah. think by doing it yeah and do you think apart from that were there any other kind of early experiences which then shaped you to become the person that you became as an adult and later on in life um I'm sh- I'm sure there were I mean in the 60s I became very, particularly the late 60s, I became aware that as a person I was quite anxious and that awareness got me to look for a solution to that and I started reading um, Emerson and uh, various books, spiritual books at that time and then then I read... um, which I've sort of discovered is really interesting. I read Autobiography of a Yogananda, which apparently is the Steve Jobs' favourite book, so much so that when he died, all the high and mighty that came to his funeral were given this book in a brown envelope. And it was it was Autobiography of a Yogi because it was part of his journey. And, you know, he was very interested in spirituality, uh, particularly the Hindu path, and he went... I just learned this recently, he went and lived near the ashram of Yogananda, although Yogananda had already passed away by then. Um, So there were some similarities in that. And um, I started meditating. It was like a correspondence course because Yogananda had already passed away. The important thing about Yogananda was that he he was a spiritual adept and he had a master but he also traveled to the West and became, so he was one of the first people that brought meditation in the 50s to America and, and, and the UK. And he met people like Einstein and he found this links between spirituality and science. And, and so he was well known for that. His story is really, really interesting and it really inspired me and it inspired me to go to, go to India, actually. Yeah. And, th- and that's actually one of the things I wanted to ask you about is, is about I guess the 1960s and 70s and um you were born in the 60s in London and then um we hear so much about the 60s and the 70s and what the you know the culture and the environment was like and it was quite a unique time and I guess you yeah, touched yeah. on about that I guess that search for spirituality but what are those kind of recollections that you had around those that around that time in particular the 60s and why was it so special and I mean because 
one of the things that obviously with your photography, you very much um, photograph many famous kind of bands and singers, from yeah. Jimi Hendrix, Bob Dylan, Rolling Stones, etc. So you're really amongst that culture that we know of. So yeah. some of us that missed out that that decade, what was what was the flavor and feel of it? Um, what was going on at that time? We have to remember that I uh, I was born right after the the end of World War Two, and the way that I describe it is there was a kind of spiritual grey fog hanging over, particularly UK and um, I don't know about America, but definitely the UK. So they'd just come out of a war, and then also there was nervousness that there would be another war you know with all the things that were happening in the in, you know in cambodia and cuba and all of these so there was definitely the threat of war and i grew up in that and i think the 60s came in to shine a bit of light into it and to bring some positivity and change in the culture and i think that's really what it was the whole movement was about anti-war it was about peace and but also a lot of other things like uh, spirituality came into uh, into into sight eating healthily meditating you know all these things feminism all those things started in that period and i do see a lot of similarities to what's happening now you know we have wars going on and you know, there's now a big movement about ecology and the planet and looking after the planet and all these things. So I do find a lot of parallels between that period and what is happening now. I did feel for a long period that the youth were not really interested in what was going on in the world. But I think this generation definitely are. And there's a certain transparency that things that were able to be got away with in the past and not allowed to be got away with now and you you do wonder about i guess those parallels and those kind of pe- peaks and troughs now as you mentioned because yeah. there was obviously the recent uk census which shows you know the majority of people don't believe in god now and you yeah. wonder whether actually you know at some point then it'll be an you know it'll swing back because people will be looking for yeah. searching and meaning and purpose and and exist that existential kind of thinking about where they're going in life and yeah. moved on from all of the materialistic stuff of the 80s and the 90s so you yeah. do wonder about what will follow you know absolutely because yeah. i think just looking at in our own lives when we get lost big things happen to bring us back to 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 the the reality of things and so I, yeah it's it definitely feels like that time and I do feel in the youth a kind of enthusiasm for things to change. And that's that's not a bad thing when things are not going that well. <laughs> and so but in the 60s, so how did photography become your profession or how did you then get to something that might have been a hobby to then something that was more significant than that? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of when I tell this story, people just can't kind of amazed by it but I I was always interested in the idea of framing things and I used to do this I've told this story a lot you know I used used to put a frame around things with my fingers and just think well if you remove that and you zoom into that then you can see that whatever it is 
how it really is. You're not distracted by all the other things around it. So I used to do that very naturally. And I always thought that I would work in, in that kind of world. But I thought maybe it would be filming or TV cameraman or something. But then um, I was living in a very nice muse flat in London, uh, near Regent's Park. And uh, I'd been living there by myself, but then I, I was struggling to pay the rent. So there was a friend of mine who was a, a BBC DJ um, uh, who became quite famous, actually. But I, he needed somewhere to live. And I said, oh, why don't you come and share the flat with me? So we kind of, uh, he moved in. But I hadn't sort of re thought about it. He's Because he's very famous and very popular, the house was always full of people and fans and you know uh, uh, groups you know it was just like I lost my peaceful place um, but one day this guy arrived uh, I'll never forget him his name was Artie Rip and he was the head of Buddha Records and he wore like a you know a cowboy hat and he came into the flat and he knew that I was interested in photography and he said and he had he, had, he sort of produced this silver box and he said what do you think about this and he opened the silver box and there was like there was a nikon camera body and a, and a canon and there were lenses and i was like wow that's amazing and uh yeah oh i've kind of left a bit out but i'll come back to it anyway up to that point i had like a simple pentax camera it was still a studio camera but it was um i had no money and i got a tax rebate from the government and uh, for 60 pounds and my friend said oh there's a studio camera being sold for 60 pounds and I said okay I'm buying it so I had that but it was a bit limited to what I could do with it so this guy Artie Rip arrived with the case and um, I was I felt like a kid in a candy store and I was going oh this is amazing and he he shut the lid on the box and said you take it I don't need it at the moment and I'll get it off of you at some later point so he just handed me this box and I was like what? You know, so I suddenly had like all this professional equipment. So I carried on doing pictures of rock stars and just building up my own business. And uh, after about a year, I had a jar of coins. So whenever I needed to go to a job, because I had no money, whenever I went to go to a job, I took the coins to pay for the train fare or the bus or something. And then, so, and after a year of doing that, my business was turning over and I had money. And I went back to, and I met him in some hotel in Park Lane and gave him back the cameras and bought my own, bought my own. So That's a fascinating yeah. story. And I guess you, you, you often hear about it's it's these opportunities in life that just come out of nowhere, don't they? And, yeah. and you know, it, it can change people's lives. And it's there's really some clear sign. And then, and then on, on top of that, I had met my landlord one day, I think, on the street or on the underground he said oh what are you doing i said oh i just started doing photography and he said oh that's interesting he said the guy that used to live in your flat did photography and he left some equipment maybe you can use it so i inherited a whole dark room and the whole thing and so i set that up in the bathroom and fantastic and and had you were you self-taught in terms of yeah, photography yeah. or did you go to any co do okay. college or school uh, university or qualifications in photography I didn't. and whenever i got stuck if i didn't understand something i thought oh, okay i'll go to the 
professional camera shop and I'd go in and I'd say to the man, could you tell me about apertures and shutter speeds? And he'd talk to me for 10 minutes in a language that I did not understand. And I obviously wasn't meant to understand. It was not for, you know, young whippersnappers like me. It was the elite of the elite did photography. And, uh, and uh, so I just had to learn by myself, which is what I did. Fantastic. Cool. And so we'll come back to your your journey, but we're going to set you on this desert island um, yeah. on your own, and uh, you're going to take some of these gems away with you. So what is the first gem, Sidi Peter, that you've okay. chosen to and take I'm with you? I'm going to set, it's quite nice, we were talking about the 60s. So this is towards the end of that period. I was living in Notting Hill Gate in a, in a one-room attic flat. This is after I left the other the other place and moved into a much smaller place. And uh, it was a one-room attic flat that I'd painted bright sunshine yellow. Uh, even the radio was painted yellow and even the tin bath, because it didn't have a bathroom, so I had like a tin bath in there. Such a, such a 60s image. <laughs> yeah, it was really small. And um, one morning I was, one grey morning I woke up and I was feeling like I need some inspiration. So I, I thought I'll, I'll venture out from the flat and uh, with my camera in hand and take some photos. So as I, as I wandered through the nearby streets, I discovered this was in um, near Portobello Road area. So I was wandering around the streets and I discovered um, a series of uh, derelict houses which had been painted black for a film set. And someone had graffitied on one of the walls, we teach all hearts to break. So in big letters, it just put, we teach all hearts to break. And I was like, no, what, what does this mean? You know, like, it was like, it was like a message to me, but I didn't, what does it mean? We teach all hearts to break. Anyway, I lifted up my camera to take a picture of it. And a boy ran in his school uniform, right? Ran like across the image. And that's the shot I got. In, in the following years after that incident, I then went to India. So fairly soon after that, I went off to India on my spiritual quest. And I was in India for seven months. I then returned to England and discovered Islam. I'd seen Islam in, uh, in India, but I was looking at all the different religions. I was studying Hinduism and Buddhism and Sikhism. And, and I read a bit about Islam. And then I, I, just, I kind of discovered Islam. And then just before Ramadan, I traveled to Morocco and I spent the whole of the, the whole of month of Ramadan in the, what's called a Zawiya of a great sage and saint, Sidi Muhammad Habib. And so I had that very powerful experience. And then three months later, I performed the Hajj. I then discovered this ayah, we should show, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, we should show them our signs upon the horizons and within themselves until it becomes clear to them that this is the truth. And I realized that ayah reminded me of that graffiti I had seen. Because all that stuff happened right after I saw that thing, you know, and it, you know, I did all that stuff. We went around India looking for a teacher. 
I came back and then I was in Morocco and it was tough for me being in Morocco. It was, you know, it was not a rich, the Zawiya was very poor. You know, it had miskeen kind of fukra there and it was hard for me, you know, it was tough, it was cold and I was fasting for the first time and all that. So it was like, but that's something I realize now that that, seeing that piece of graffiti was really important for me and I really, that, that ayat, does kind of stay with me a lot i think that's beautiful and and i guess it's that idea of sometimes in life you know you need to get broken down or you need that hardship or you need that kind of almost come to some sort of breaking point or, or yeah. rock bottom before you can then rebuild afresh you know and i think yeah. So many of those kind of. Also, um... my Hajj was really hard. You know, I mean, it was 1971. It was tough in those days. There were no proper toilets. You know, we got sunstroke. We lost. We, our, um, you know, the guys who were supposed to look after you on the Hajj vanished and stuff. So we were like left on our. So it was it was a tough Hajj, you know, but it was very blessed. Masala, so you went in 1971, didn't you? And so you'd become a Muslim in but. Two years earlier, is that right? Not two years, no. In, so all, all that happened. I went to India in '71. Okay. Uh, the, the first seven months of '71, uh, I was back a month, and then I accepted Islam, and then I went to to Morocco and did Hajj at the end of that year. So all that happened in like in a year. What a massive transformation in yeah. in, in that time, yeah. and, and and I guess there's. Um, a number of very prominent British um, and American uh, people that became Muslims around that time as well. Um, so I'm just really fascinated to learn a little bit around what that kind of environment was, particularly for Muslim converts, because I guess a lot of the Muslims into the UK around that time were migrants from um, yeah, mostly, yeah. like South Asia, etc., Pakistan, India. But there was also this other community that was growing and um, particularly, you know, fascinated about this kind of uh, the Norwich Muslim community, and I know there's the film that was made, "Blessed Are the Strangers," yeah. and we know, you know, Cat Stevens' use of Islam and people like Sheikh Hamza and stuff. You know, there was this yeah. something going on around that time as well. But was lot, yeah. what, what was? Are you able to share any memories of what that was like for the Muslim convert community, particularly in the West and in, um, because people that are not too dissimilar from. You know, going from the rock or the pop style, uh, pop kind of um, background to then looking for searching and finding Islam. Yeah, I'd be fascinated to hear a little bit in terms of what was that kind of Muslim environment, and and were you familiar with the Norwich Muslim community at that time? I, mean, I knew, I knew that when they were in London, I knew that community. But yeah. I, I, I have one thing. I don't use the word convert because I think it's very confusing for for people who aren't Muslim because it kind of as an outsider, it sounds like you were something and you became something else. And I've ne I never felt that. I've always felt that I'm the same person. Maybe I um, modified the way I live, but inside I'm still the same person. I didn't become something different. And I think that's confusing for people, especially if, if the person who's become a Muslim suddenly starts dressing like an Arab or yeah. Or you know that for a western that's really confusing and, and i think it's an important message to put out you're not you don't become a different person you're the same person mm -hmm. and you know i've been working on a project 20 years which I'm, i hope to publish next year which is about muslims in china 
And China is one of the few places where I, they have such a strong Chinese identity. And I love it because it's really interesting. They're not Chinese who became Arabs. They're Chinese who became Muslims. And so that it's a continuation from their Buddhist, Confucian, Taoist tradition. And the way that Islam was presented to them, it wasn't seen as a threat. It seemed that it was presented as a continuation of what they really believed in. It's quite a clunky term, isn't it? Because we hear about convert and then we have, you know, revert and then... Yeah, revert is even worse. It, one of the funny ones that I always hear is when they say new Muslims and say, when does a new Muslim stop becoming a new Muslim? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like a new Muslim 50 years later is still called a new Muslim, which is... So I, th I think you're to totally right. It's very clunky terminology. And the way I explain it is someone could invite me to a meal. I have a choice, right? I can accept it or I can decline it. And I chose to accept it. And that's how it is for me. And, you know, it's a blessing. You know, I'm not diminishing it at all. But I, we, we need to put these things in a language that other people can understand. And the Chinese were really clever at this, which we've discovered in our research, is that they, two of the greatest uh, Muslim scholars in the Ming dynasty, decided the only way they could teach Islam to the Chinese was to become Buddhist, Confucian, Taoist monks, which they did. And after they did that, then they said, we can't use Arabic. The Chinese do not know Arabic. We have to use their terminology. So instead of talking about God or Allah, they talked about the most high or the most real. They didn't talk about prophets. They talked about sages. They didn't talk about Iman. They talked about clear light, a clear light that enters the heart. When I, when I read this, I said, that's amazing. And that's what we didn't understand. You know, really, we should... Because there's more that unites us as a, as a, as a community than, than separates us. And I'm talking about the host community in the UK, you know. But if it's presented as something alien, people will always be frightened of it. Yeah. No, I, think that, I think that's such a valuable point that we need to think, uh, particularly around our identity as well, which yeah. I'll, I'll maybe come back to you on that as yeah, well. Yeah. Um, for people that don't know the kind of that Norwich Muslim community and... I mean, did you come across people like uh, Yusuf Islam around that time, or? Yeah, I mean, Yusuf was wasn't that really connected with that community because he was busy um, on his own journey. But I mean, uh, many people who are known today came into the. It was really. I mean, we were in Bristol Gardens in London, and then the whole community moved up to Norwich. Um, but you know, people like. Uh, Shakamza Yusuf came through, Dr. Omar Abdullah. Uh, not, I think Abdul Hakim came to visit, but he never stayed. A lot of people were curious about that community, and it was an interesting um, phenomena, phenomena. I mean, it had its own problems, which is like a lot of, a lot of these things, and it, I, I kind of uh, outgrew it at the end. I just realized that I... It was like a university for me. It was very important, but and then I had to move on. And I think if I hadn't moved on, I wouldn't have met all the, the great shape that I met in my journey with Meetings Mountains. But um, yeah, but there were, I really learned this thing about brotherhood and working together and, you know, and that was, that was a very precious gift from that community. And uh, I think it was important, you know, it was important to give 
Islam a kind of British face, really. And I and I guess we're still on that journey to find that proper British Muslim identity. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah, this, uh... I'm still working it out because yeah. it's kind of you know just discovering this whole Chinese thing makes me really think it all over again. You know. And so let's come on to your next item, uh, your next gem that you'll take so, to the Dead Island. Um, in 2000 and, 2003, I wanted to do I, I wanted to do a book of my work because I'd spent like 30 years just traveling nonstop around the Muslim world and understanding Islam from all these different cultures. And <laughs> I wanted to do a... I wanted to do a book and I was the idea for the book came for me thinking about well what's life going to be like for you when you're much older and and uh, hopefully you're living on some beautiful tropical island somewhere away from the cold of England and maybe you've got like a um, a juice shop on the beach or something and you know how would you think about your life and I was thinking well I would think about I'd remember stay moments in my life but the photos that I took because they're like the trigger to remembering events so I thought okay yeah that's um that's a good idea for a book and then I came across the um you know the, the famous hadith the prophet said you know I am in this world like a traveler who takes shade under a tree only to resume his journey and I just was like that one hadith sums up our whole kind of life here, really. And I, I remember reading a book called, um, someone gave me a book, it's a very thin book called The Lives of Man. It was written by a Hadrami uh, scholar and sage, uh, Imam Haddad. And, and it really describes very clearly, you know, the journey before this world and then this journey in this world through childhood, childhood, uh, you know, adulthood, maturity, and old age, and then what happens to you afterwards. And so this bit is like a a section in the middle of it, which has its own stages, but it's not it's not the only thing, as most people in this world think. You know, and I, and I remember when I was 16, thinking, well, it can't be life just ends. Like, in those days when you switch the TV off, there was like a white spot that disappeared. And I was thinking, Life can't be, it can't be just that. You have this life and then it's switched off and it's nothing. It doesn't make sense to me. So, you know, then through all my studies and looking at other religions, I realized there was much more to it than just this bit that we're in. So that, that was, that was important um, message for me. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you a bit about, I've got your book, one of your books. Yeah, that's the book. yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Um, and and we'll run through because you, you've got some wonderful books that you've done over the years. So I've always loved. So before I knew who you were, see the yeah. I'd always obviously seen your pictures, and um, particularly because I was growing up in the nineties, and and I guess these were kind of iconic pictures that you would see. And particularly the other one was um, the sister in the uh, hijab with the British uh, with the British flag. Yeah, we well, can um, talk about that. Yeah, they are. Yeah, okay. yeah, that was very important. Yeah. But this one particularly, and, and we'll send links on kind of the episode show notes, um, but this front image is the one that's really, it's, it's, it's an amazing picture. I mean, are you able to just describe it for the listeners? And do you remember when you took it? Yeah. Tell, I, tell us a bit about that. That was, um, that was an important picture for me because I knew about um, 
Hassan Fateh, the, the traditional architect, and who used to build in mud, you know, traditional adobe buildings. And I was really keen to visit his mosque in Warna in South, in South Egypt. And um, so I went, I went to Luxor, and on, on that side of Luxor, you have all the pharaonic buildings and things. And then you take the ferry across, and you go to Gwana, which is on the other side of the Nile. And I went to the mosque, it's really simple. And I went in and looked at it. And I, to be honest, I didn't really take any pictures inside. I came outside the mosque and I looked back in and I saw this man praying in that, in that pool of light by the simple terracotta wall, which had the chalk mark of the divine name on it. And I took two, I think two pictures, two frames. Now, if I really thought that was a serious picture, I would have shot like a roll of film in those days. It was a throwaway thing. I looked in, saw this thing, took the picture and then left. I gave, I gave, um, there's a very famous calligrapher, Ahmed Mustafa, Ahmed Mustafa, who is from Egypt, and I was going to visit him one day, and I took him a print of that. And he looked at it and he said, oh, I think that picture's got um, golden ratio, you know, divine proportion. And I said, what's that? And he said, didn't you ever study art? I said, no, I didn't, yeah, I'm self-taught. He said, yeah, and he gets his tape measure out, and he explains to me about uh, golden ratio and it's two thirds one and uh, two thirds light one third dark and you know it's it's a very measured thing I mean they, 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 you know, a lot of creation is based on this golden ratio plants and so many things in creation if you research it it's fascinating he gets his tape measure out and he measured it he said exactly it. it's point you know point six 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 and I was going wow that's that's a proof that picture was a gift from God because you know it was not it was just a throwaway thing and I've really held on to that and I teach students about that that it's really it was just totally impulsive thing from intuition and just like you just didn't really think about it and if you're if you're in tune then these you know these things you get given these gifts because we have no control over this thing I mean God's name is Al Musawir, not us. You know, he is he is Al Musawir, the creator of forms. And and there must be something in that because you know that then resonates with the person that looks at the pictures. Like, yes, you know, exactly. why did I in the nineties feel that that picture stands out, or why have thousands or millions also thought these are the certain images that somehow I'm connected with that has some yeah. special meaning for me and and you know me. I guess it's a real blessing that you're partly the conduit for that connection, isn't it? That oh, you're able I'm to then humbled. share these images that then people, you I'm, know, um, I'm humbled reflect by it. on. Yeah, yeah. I'm humbled by it because I, you know, people, when I used to travel in the Muslim world, people say, what do you do? And I used to say, oh, I'm Muslim, like, which is a wrong thing to say, actually. So I was saying, I was with a scholar chatting and I said, I think all photographers should be called Abdul Al-Musawir. And he said, but also, the, as you said, also the people that are looking at them because they're also enjoying that aspect of the creator. And, and I thought, yeah, that's, that puts it on to a whole other level. you know. And, and I just wanted to ask you about that and, and continuing your own journey then, um, you, know, in, in, you know, after your Hajj. Um, 
because I was reading somewhere that you've you know you've been a photographer you know you've been taking photos for over 55 years and yeah. I was astonished to hear you've probably got over half a million pictures. Well I think that's a bit exaggerated. I is think it? we did a calculation once and I don't know where we came up with it. The trouble is I don't know how many digital files there are now but I mean it's I've got like uh, like six filing cabinets you know large ones full of slides you know and then there's other stuff in the loft I mean it's pretty high number there's no way I can calculate it properly but, but thousands and tens of thousands probably yeah it's a, it's a lot anyway and I, I and I was wondering a little bit around um your experience when you know you, you became a Muslim um because I guess photos and music are kind of some of the fixations of a lot of Muslims in terms of the art and culture. Um, and we know people such as Yusuf Islam, who then when they became Muslim, they you know, said, look, we're going to stop that. And then yeah. obviously over time, you know, um, you know, they, you know, they go back to it and then they see, see the, um, the benefit and, and the gift of, of their talent. Um, did you because photos is one of the big things because i was just wondering even when you're going to take pictures in in mosque or other places you know sometimes that is quite frowned upon but back in the early days did you ever consider saying well i need to reject this photography i need to stop it or did anyone say to you look now that you're muslim you shouldn't be taking you know you should find something else to do did that ever question arise for Um... you no one that I knew told me it was haram, but people, someone did say, oh, it's, you're being very narcissistic, like you're just photographing yourself, like wherever you do. And it kind of confused me a little bit for a period, but I always loved photography and I always felt, you know, images spoke to me in a very strong way that nothing else did. I mean, and, and in 60s, it was it was music was the big obsession. And then... I think now images is a language. I mean, all all the youth communicate with images. It's almost like we're going back to how language began, you know, and it's like we're reversing. And uh, I think the youth are generalizing a bit, but they don't read as much as maybe, you know, the earlier generations and things. Um, So there was certain things. I mean, I think, I mean, in Saudi Arabia, you meet people that tell you it's, you know, it's haram. And and the thing is, my only, I never felt it was haram. And the thing was that I had photographed great scholars and I knew that they wouldn't let me take their pictures if it was haram. Now, I only ever had one man, and that, it wasn't somebody that I wanted to photograph, but someone asked me, if you're in, I think it was in Turkey, when you're passing through, can you go and take his picture? So I went to him and I asked him, and he said, "No, I don't. I don't like people photographing me." Uh, but then he thought about it. He said, "Okay, you can take my picture, but don't just like do my head. You have to do my whole body," which was really interesting. You know, it made me think about it a lot because this idea that you disconnect—you know—it's a disconnected head. I totally understand it. And I've always, in photography, you have this thing, it's like head, two-thirds, which is like the head, the upper torso, and the arms, you include the arms in it. Or then you have the full, you know, you don't cut people's legs off or you cut people's limbs off. Even though you might not notice it, unconsciously, 
you have kind of cut off their limbs. So I have given all this stuff a lot of thought about how, how you do it. And it's always, for me, it's always about respecting the person. You know, it's not, and I've felt that I've been able to travel to places and meet people that people can't get to. So I always felt that I was a, like a bridge. And and I think you you certainly um, captured some of that in and I guess your last few pieces of work and I guess the very most recent one is uh, uh, your your books uh, example uh, exemplars for our time yeah, but yeah. Like meeting with mountains and yeah. um, I'm just fascinated by the idea of I guess these these sheikhs and spiritual people and saintly people then. Um, because usually they're hidden, aren't they? And and they are. You know, and, they, and many you, of many of them had never ever um, been photographed before, and my job was to ask them, and I wasn't going to try and persuade them, but just hope that they would see the wisdom in letting me take their pictures. Because <clears throat> I think at a certain point, I would sit with scholars and they would talk about this sheikh and that teacher and this, but I couldn't see them and I would just get lost. It was just too many names. I couldn't keep it in my brain. And, I, you know, I'm a much more visual person. I need to see the face. Then I can remember them. Once I've seen the face, you tell me the story, that's connected. But without the image, I can't, I can't keep it. I'm not scholarly. I don't have a scholarly brain like that. And so it was really important for me to put a face to those people. And... I didn't have anybody that refused to be photographed. And many of them had never been photographed before. Many of them um, passed away after I did the picture, which was very disconcerting for me. I thought, well, if the word gets out, you know, like, <laughs> it's so arrogant to think that I had any power over everything. And I met Dr. Mustafa Badawi in Medina, and he said, no, no. That's the reason they let you take their picture. They were leaving, so it didn't matter anymore. You know, when you're in their presence yeah. or some of these people's presence, is it a, some? I mean, how do you feel? Is there some special emotions or aura or something around you when you're in that presence, or are you just focused on the photo at the time, or do you feel I'm definitely the something? You know spiritual special and you know intangible going on in, in this moment uh, well i'm lucky i have something to do so that's a good distraction uh, if i was to sit there and think about all this stuff it would be very very difficult um so i have something to do it stops me being self-conscious in their company yeah. but at the same time i'm well aware that they are very you know very special people and i tried to make it as painless for them because look, many of them were elderly you know many of them were over 100 years old and stuff and you know they're not going to take me sort of posing them and moving them around so really i had to do have all my homework done before i actually did did the picture but it was always i mean that was the reason i did the book meeting to mountains that way it was really um telling that story about what happened when I when I when I was in their presence and doing the picture? Yeah. And have you always had a preference of take pictures of people rather than places or buildings or? Um, 
I, I prefer people because they're just so fascinating, but it's harder for me for people because I'm quite a shy person and I don't, it's kind of, you have to get over that because people being photographed usually are very nervous anyway. Um, you know, in the West, not so much in, in the traditional, if, they, if they're allowing you to, to take their picture, they don't have an issue. But I think more in the West, people are more sensitive. It's all about identity and stuff. Yeah. Um, and so for me, it's kind of, uh, it's easier with those kind of people because they're not putting on a face. Do you understand? They are who they are. Whereas here in the West, we tend to put on a face. That's why the whole selfie generation is such a big thing. You know, it's all about this is me in this place and this is me. And it's all about the self, you know, whereas they're about the non-self, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm interested in your thoughts on on that topic in terms of I guess in this present day and age, um, there's a few things particularly around I guess photos and images and I mean one is that we just there's so much abundance of of images that we see now both from on our phones on social media on TV etc. Um, and I guess previously even the process of that because everything's digital now you know it's instant. And I guess, you know, traditionally it's, you know, you know, I remember the roll up camera, you take your pictures and send it away for developing. And then you'd be a lot more precious about, you know, how many images you could take. And yeah. then you wait a few days for it to get back. What what impact do you think that has had on us as as humans, as, as people? And, and is it a good or bad thing, I guess? Because it's, it's, um, um, it's, you know, such a change, particularly in the last probably 10 20 years i think yeah, it's huge i mean you know i used to go off and do trips i'd be away six weeks and i wouldn't know what i had until i came back you know and it, so now you have this you know this modern technology which was not that great in the beginning i mean even i think now it's just maturing into a very interesting medium um and you know some people say that the iPhone in a year's time will be more sophisticated than most cameras that you can buy, you know. I mean, it, it does depend on what you want to do with the images, though. I mean, if you're just using it as a kind of um, communicative thing, it's it's fine for that immediate thing. But, you know, I, I'm amazed there's still some serious... Uh, hardcore people that still travel around the world with you know large plate cameras with using film not and uh, there's a guy who's very interesting who i really respect michael jimmy nelson who i actually met uh, recently and i really admire him he's a really great communicator and he travels to really remote places really unaccessible places with a large plate camera now i kind of assumed that he was shooting on digital he said, no, I take 50 sheets of film with me, which means every photo I take has to count. Because yeah. it's all for him, it's all about that moment. And he and he told me that he went to a school and the kids were saying, why don't you just spray and pray? You know, this thing, it's just, you just like, you just wipe the phone over and just shoot masses and then you can choose one. And he's got he's got such a lot of insight into that because he says it's not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in that moment when everything comes together, when you've prepared everything, and that is a, like almost like a moment of unity, you know. And that's what he's about. It's not about anything else, you know. And that that's beautiful. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so tell us about your next gem. Okay, so I'm going to have to backtrack because we started talking about um, meetings and mountains, but I'll, I'll just I'll just get this one in there because we started to talk about the art of integration and the, the picture of the... Um, so art of integration came from me after traveling uh, for about 30 years around the Muslim world. And I came back and this is in the early 2000s. Um, people were being really stereotyped as Muslims being either smoke uh, uh, shisha smoking Arabs in Edgware Road or, you know, the Pakistani curry shops or something. And it was just like, but that's not my experience. There, there are English Muslims here. I met Muslims from every country in England. So that's, so I thought I should do something about England, you know, like I've never, I've never done anything about England. And, and, so and I, Scotland, and Scotland. And Scotland, of course, yeah. Uh, in those days, we were much more united. <laughs> united. So I, I came up with this idea to do this project called um, The Art of Integration. And it really was like to find Muslims in every profession and and just show that they're everywhere and they, they don't fit particular stereotypes. It was enhanced by, um, someone told me, um, actually, so it was a scholar said that there were Muslims in this country had three choices. So it was um, isolation, assimilation, or integration. Isolation is not acceptable because we're, we're a community led people and assimilation means that you become part of the society but you lose your core beliefs and i really and integration is the middle path i know people don't like this word but it's really it's in the middle and i think it's the best description because my understanding always you are still a muslim you can be english but your your private things that mean things to you like your prayer and and how you live your life, they're at the core of you and that shouldn't be affected. And so that that was really my idea about the project and I wanted to find, the only thing was that I, everyone I photographed had to have some kind of belief structure in their life. Um, and then I had, there was a, a scholar who said, um, um, sorry, sorry, I'm just I'm trying to, um, so it, Sheikh Bar who is uh, um, an African scholar, he described Islam as, as a crystal clear river, which I thought was really, really beautiful. And uh, he said, it's pure, sweet and unpolluted. And it, it reflects the color of the riverbed. Therefore, if the rocks on the riverbed are black, the water looks black. And if they're yellow, the water looks yellow. Therefore, in Africa, Islam is African, and in China, it's Chinese, and therefore, in England, it's it's British, and that 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 was really the whole uh, concept behind art of integration. Yeah. And and that's a beautiful analogy, um, and I guess that's you know very much reflected in our own kind of the early history of Islam as well, and yeah. after the Prophet peace be upon him time where. When when the companions of Sahaba, you know, went places and you know, they didn't go there to impose the version from Makkah or Medina, isn't it? They, um, 
the the culture and the flavor of the the local area and i guess that's that's the beauty and the diversity actually that we see um but i I think probably as a british muslim community we're still struggling with that because yeah that pockets of you know still it's quite an early you know it's probably mainly from the 50s and 60s although we know there's there were muslims a lot earlier than that in victorian times but I guess it's the 50s and 60s where the mass migration has come and particularly importing that South South, uh, Asian and kind of Arab. Um, So I I think many of us are hopeful that things will go in the right direction and and become more part of this. Because I remember doing workshops in schools around Islam and you showed them probably, I I probably stole a lot of your pictures (laughs) without knowing, but you know, you showed them pictures like, you know different colored people and say who the muslims here yeah, yeah. they'll always say go the brown ones or the yeah. you know eastern european uh, eastern looking and really actually saying you, you know there's actually white muslims yeah, and there's yeah. the, the color and, and i think that's um still a lot of education and reflection that we need as a, as a community um and i guess that's where that picture of the sister with the hijab uh the union jack one has been such a uh, british flag is just such a striking image actually yeah and yeah. i did that way before i did that project it was just like it, we just had this idea to do it and so i carried it on in the book with the scottish flags and the welsh and the irish yeah because it's and i particularly chose the flags of the saints to give it a kind of spiritual element to yeah so yeah it was, it was a good project and that that project went around the world it went to 40 countries it even right. went to like Timbuktu, like places I didn't go to. I went to Baghdad during the war and stuff. So, I mean, it really, I think it was a bit ahead of its time, that, yeah. that thing. But anyway, it was, a, it was a great project to do. And talking about British identity, I, I, I was trying to find the actual clip, but I'm not sure. I just remember Sheikh Hamza talking once in one of his lectures about tea yeah and, and he talked about you i'm pretty <laughs> sure he's referring to you and he goes if anyone knows how to make a proper english cup of tea it's say the peter sanders and uh, have, have i got that story correct is that something That's that comes up something about prayed, you? where he prayed over the tea say that again sorry the one where he prayed over the tea because we went we went somewhere where they didn't have very nice tea and he was like worried for me and he prayed <laughs> over it it was like PG tips or something, or <laughs> and I said, "Oh, that's really delicious tea." <laughs> Are you a bit of a tea connoisseur? I am a I'm a tea snob. I would say it's terrible, but <clears throat> we've always had this thing. My wife and I, it's like we used to do it with the kids. When the kids came back from school, we would stop and have tea, and so it was a time to be with the kids after they came back from school. And we've always like done it. We've done it wherever we've travelled. Even in Sudan deserts, you know, we would stop and light a fire and have tea. And it's just like my ritual. It's like, you know, some people have naps in the afternoon. I don't have naps. I have a cup of tea and then I can go back to work. So it's kind of, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of habit. But because of that, I like to drink nice tea. And so I've kind of, it's one of the things I like, you know. Brilliant, brilliant. Take us to your next item. Okay, so then we, we're back to meeting to the mountains. Um, one of the, the prophets, Muhammad's constant prayers was, Oh God, I ask you for your love and the love of whoever loves you and the love of deeds that will bring me closer to you and closer to your love. And I, you know, that was really what meetings with mountains was about. You know, these, these people really love God. They've 
dedicated their lives to him, you know, against great difficulties and challenges, and they really are God's servants, you know, and in in the true meaning of what that is, you know, they spend their life serving people, and that really was the essence of that book, and it's those faces I wanted to show because when you see these people and you sit with them, you are changed in their company, you know, and you know it it was sad for me that always the saints and sages were an integral part of the islamic world and for some reason it was made out that they were medieval or old-fashioned or and it makes me laugh because in 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 United Arab Arab Emirates they have a minister of well-being well wasn't that what the sheikh's job was you know they have mindfulness centers that's what the zawiyas were i mean it's just like okay we just give it another name but we all need that we need well-being we need to feel calm and peaceful and that's you know that's our natural nature Uh, and so really i wanted to put a face to those people and and share that with particularly the youth because i felt they were being distracted and taken down all these routes that was not beneficial for anybody you know yeah and these are quite um monumental pieces of work that uh, you know both of these kind of more your more recent ones both yeah meeting with mountains and ex- exemplars for our time um exemplars was really a combination between me and michael Sugich. um i had always wanted with meetings with mountains to have at the end of the book some deeper biographies about some of the people because their lives are so fascinating but the book meetings of mountains already became so big and it seemed to be like a bit of an add-on to add that at the back and so we decided that we would look into doing that as a separate project which is what we did and uh, we just we, we worked on that for three years and uh, it was uh, released last year and we've nearly sold out actually there's just a few copies left actually are you going to print some more no it's too expensive it was so expensive to print it's a nine box set you know and uh it was such a labor of love it was meant to be done in a year and then covid happened and it just slowed down the whole process um but i'm it really glad we did it I'm, I'm pleased with it inshallah it'll get translated into arabic or maybe someone will pick it up and we can get it reprinted because um, be- it's a beautiful kind of synergy there, isn't it? Because I know uh, see the, so Michael suggests, you know, r- has been writing the stories and the capturing that, and, you, and you've got the images. So yeah, it's yeah. just, subhanAllah, just. Um... Yeah, we're the odd couple, we call ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> and and on, I guess, you know, have you ever thought about in terms of your kind of succession as well? Now, obviously, in, in the Muslim, you know, global community you're seen as one of the very much the trailblazers around capturing these images you're perhaps one of the most well-known photographer muslim photographers of muslim um you know people and individuals and societies and even the hajj etc do you think there are people that are coming after you that um do you see that in the muslim community because i guess for many you know when i was growing up as well you know very much focus was on professions and science and you know doctors lawyers yeah. uh, accountants and arts and culture and humanities was very much 
not focused on, and that's such a contraindication, you know, contrast to our own tradition going back, but we seem to have lost it particularly in the West. Do you see people that are kind of coming through with that focus in the, the arts and the humanities and culture and, and photography that will pick up the mantle from you as well, do you think? Or do you think it's still we're a bit stagnant in that area? So it's um it's whether people are prepared to really put in the time, you know. I mean it's the trouble is people have an iPhone, they think they can take pictures. It's not, you know, you really have to put in your time and you also have to need learn a lot of life skills to be able to photograph people and interact with them and 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 that's what I teach in my workshops. And we've been doing workshops called The Art of Seeing for the last 10 years. And I'm really passionate about it. Um, when I was asked to do them, I said, how can I teach? I'm self-taught, you know, and I really didn't think that I could teach it. But after I did one, I realized I do have, you know, stuff that I've learned. And, and it's so great to find young people who are passionate about photography and share it with them. And, and I get to teach them about people that they don't know about, you know, because there's a whole world outside of the Muslim community of people, compassionate people that have traveled and spent their lives, same as me, photographing various things, whether it's wars or tribes or whatever, you know, but that in, in that they have a lot of great skills and a lot of empathy with the people that they photograph. And I think that that's an important thing for us to, you know, share with others so take us to your next gem that you're going yeah, to take yeah okay, this is um still with meetings with mountains i mean obviously meetings with mountains uh, came up with a lot of different things but the um, the title meetings with mountains came from Sheikh Hamza when i told him about the project and then i can't remember it probably was him that told me that i bismillahirrahmanirrahim have we not made the earth and expanse and the mountains as pegs. So like the mountain, the physical mountains are the pegs that hold the earth in place. And the same way the men of God, the saints and sages are also like the pegs, they hold, they're there are reference points. You know, and when you ever, you look at, I do a lot of work on the, on the Prophet's route in Saudi Arabia. We've been doing a lot of these journeys following the Hijra route and the Prophet route and the, different journeys that the Prophet then made and you realize in the hadith the mountains are really important you know like by Jebel so-and-so by Wadi so-and-so these things happen so they are points of reference um, and so I, fa- I love this synergy between the title and physical mountains and uh, there's a, a the guy called uh, Mustafa Salama is really interesting person um, going off on a tangent bit, but um, very briefly, he had a dream in which he was standing on the highest summit, calling the Adhan and making the prayer. And he called a friend up and he said, what's the highest summit? And his friend said, well, it's Mount Everest. So he then trained, he never climbed a mountain. He trained and climbed Mount Everest and called the Adhan and prayed up there. And he's now done the seven, what they call the Grand Slam, the seven mounts. And he's been to the North Pole and the South. He's always traveled. Every time I get in touch, where are you? I'm just about to go up Mount Everest. <laughs> he's such a great guy. He's really inspirational. And he said when he was at the top of Mount Everest, he felt he was with all the prophets. You know, you know, you know. It does really um, 
does something to you when you hear these stories, doesn't it? It's so so inspirational yeah. and uh, um, re- so much for reflection. Um, just because of time, should we go yeah. on to your next item yeah. as well? Yeah, so the the final one from Meetings of Mountains is the whole world is a hospital. This, this is what Sidi Mum Habib used to say to us. The whole world is a hospital and the saints and sages are the nurses and the doctors. Yeah. So as we have physical doctors for our bodies, the saints and sages are the doctors for our heart, you know, spiritual ailments. It's beautiful, yeah. beautiful. I love it. And it's, you know, it's, it's such a strong reference point for me that. Yeah. <clears throat> and, I, and I was wondering about um, this aspect of sacrifice, because I guess anybody that achieves anything um significant you can't achieve any of that without sacrificing something yeah um what sort of sacrifices do you think you've had to make throughout your life to be able to share these things and 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 pursue this you know um this passion and this love and uh who's been in the background there to help you or enable you to do what you need to do yeah well um I mean, it's that's a really good question. I mean, and and uh, someone got in touch with me recently and <clears throat> about exemplars and said, you know, it seemed that Sheikh Jafari, Dalio Jafari, spent a lot of time away from his family, and they kind of were questioning that. And and I, my only thing I could say about that was, it's not the quantity of time; it's the quality of time. And, you know, I also am guilty of that because in the early years I was traveling all the time and I left my wife looking after. We had, you know, I had uh, my son from previous marriage and three daughters and, you know, she really looked after them. I mean, I used to come back and uh, and it was difficult, you know, being away from them, but I was doing my thing. And it was funny, yeah, I was, I'm sorting out all my stuff in the loft and I found all these postcards that I'd sent to the girls when they were very young. And I showed it to my daughter and she said, we always used to think that you went away and forgot about us. And that it, it was very clear that I did, but they were too young to read them. So my wife would have read them to them. But, you know, like it, it was kind of, oh, you didn't forget us. You didn't just go away and forget us, you know. It was just like, and it was, you know, it was... It's easy, but I needed to do it. This was my, you know, my uh, was my livelihood and what I was doing on my journey. So, yeah, it's. It, I think that's probably the biggest sacrifice. And, and I guess that's one of the things about in childhood as well, isn't it? Sometimes um, you only realize, I guess, your parents' journey or sacrifices when you're older or when you're getting to pain. And actually, I think those yes. ideas you have at that time that you know. You know, if somebody's away or absent, actually, it's it's sometimes it's sometimes for 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 you, or it's yeah, yeah. something that will help you and and lots of other people around the world. And when you get older, you you know, children will often develop those insights later on. So it's kind of being the patient game. Well, it's hard think, at the time, but you know. But I think there has to be, a, as I said, there has to be a balance of it. I mean, I mm-hmm. met somebody in Medina, and he said, "Oh, I, you know." only ever go back to Bangladesh or was like every year or every two years and he said the last time I went back my daughter said who's this strange you know to his mother to his wife who's this strange man in your bed she didn't even know who her father was 
and that yeah. is that's that's tough because that that's that's not fair to a child you know yeah so finding finding that balance yeah, isn't it and everyone's situation is, is different and i think if you have somebody who can fill the gaps while you're away i guess that makes it easier and that becomes enabling as well isn't yeah. it and i mean i think you know in traditional societies they're always the grandparents to fill in the gaps and in, yeah. in, in this sort of society i mean muslims tend to hold on to that but in you know general society it's so separated and it's a problem really and are you quite an emotional person are you quite a sensitive person i think i'm quite sen- yeah i couldn't do what i do without being quite sensitive i'm i'm english so i probably control my emotions a lot <laughs> yeah. stiff, stiff upper lip yes. always be stoic yeah and during the most difficult times in your life what has kind of got you through those oh, moments it's a basic trust in god that um <clears throat> and we need reminding you know things happen and you think why did that happen then i've just learned that happened to protect you about something worse happening. You know, it's like all these things that happened. There's a reason in it. We may not see it, whatever it is, but later on in your journey, you will know why that happened. You know? yeah. Everything happens for a reason. Absolutely yeah. everything. Uh, take us to your next okay. gem. Um, and this is an important one for me at the stage of my life that is now. In, in the exemplars for our time, the uh, Sri Hamza, on the one that he talked about, his teacher, Sheikh Muhammad al-Hajj, he talked about the later years of his life. And he said, for, for Muhammad al-Hajj, the, the sacred monotony of his, of his life was his daily practice. And that, so it was a constant working on being present with God. And he said, because... If one is present with God, one is present with his creation. And so there's this idea that every day is like Groundhog Day. But it is actually. I mean, every day is presented. It's a new day. It's a new opportunity for us. But there's, there becomes this idea it's boring. But I think if you have certain things, structure in your life, like for us, the prayer and and for me, stopping to have afternoon tea, and then my work is all woven in between that and family life and everything. It is okay. It can at times be very appear to others it's very monotonous, but actually within that monotony is great sacredness. You know, and, and I think that's beautiful, and it also reminds us, I guess, that idea of consistency and and. And effort is it's not something we often we think about these saints as just they wake up in the morning and they're saintly, you know, is actually through, through months and years and decades of 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 working and challenging yeah, and struggling. just like probably for you, you people will externally see you aimlessly take a picture, not knowing for 50, 60 years, you know, you've been refining, refining, practicing, yeah, practicing. Yeah. And I think that's something and that, that's one of the dangers of this current society and particularly things with social media we think you know we only see the good bits and we think people's lives are perfect and you don't see all of the hard work consistency um so i think that's a beautiful reminder actually in terms of maybe that consistent daily practice is 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 perhaps where where you reap the rewards later on and reap the blessings isn't it yeah and i really reflect on that a lot you know because uh um 
it's funny when I was young, I had so much time on my hands. Now I'm, you know, where I am now, and I'm just so busy every day. It's like I don't have a lot of time for sacred monotony, but there is. I mean, there are parts of the day when, oh, what am I doing next? You know, or, you know, like, oh, help, nothing's happening. Why is nothing happening? You know, you get used to being busy, and then, then when it's not busy, oh, okay, what do I do? No, enjoy it. You've got a bit of time to read or do something, you know, that you don't have time to do normally. So, okay. Um, I mean, and how do you relax, or what makes you laugh? Like when when you're not working, or when you're not taking photos. What, what... No, it's just, I mean, I, it's funny. I'm, you know, I had three years where I didn't really travel. I'm just about to start traveling again. It's a little bit daunting for me. I'm, you know, I'm not getting younger, and I'm going off to do these pretty tough trips. And I'm like, well, can you still do this? You know, like, but I'm sure once I get into it, I'll be fine. You know, and it's probably better that there won't be so much stress around it. I think there was always a lot of stress on it when I did all this stuff before and my body took the toll of it now. Now my body won't let me. You can't have any stress in your life. So now I've got to just go and enjoy it. You know, I'm just like, okay, enjoy being in all these places, enjoying taking pictures and just just enjoying meeting people. And yeah, yeah, it's like. And, and you spoke about the, in terms of your projects, the China book, yeah. are there any other kind of projects yeah, or yeah. things that you're working on or you'd like to yeah, yeah. I'm, develop? I'm, I'm going to do a, inshallah, I'm going to do a book about Uzbekistan. So that's, you know, I'm going to be going to Uzbekistan this year, and next year for, to do some work on something. And then I don't know, I have endless projects I want to do, I, but I'm being encouraged to also do like a visual I don't know, like to call it a memoir, but it's like a retrospective or something. And um, I'm, I'm working on that. I'm getting some pretty interesting ideas mm. to do that. Because it's kind of, for some people looking at me that I did all this rock stuff and then, you know, I spend my life in sacred places and um, visiting saints and say, you know, they can't understand it. But they have to understand that sitting with the, photographing rock stars was an opportunity for me to have a one-to-one -one with them because they were the heroes at the time they were the spokespeople of, the, of that cultural revolution and so we looked towards them for trying to un make sense of it all now my I say kibler but my you know my uh, focus has changed it's still the same though I'm still searching I'm still looking it doesn't it's not any different and I and I quite like these extremes because they're all one thing. Yeah, and when we hit kind of middle age onwards, I guess we all start to think about our legacy and how we want to be remembered. What's your kind of? How would you like to be remembered, or what legacy would you like to leave behind? It's so funny because when I met Jimmy Nelson, within ten minutes of talking to him, he said, "What's your legacy?" And I said, "I don't know. I've never really thought about it, and and I need somebody to tell me because I." I'm too busy in it to know what it is. And, and I've never really thought about it like that because I'm just kind of, I've just followed my own kind of passions and my intuition and my own journey that I, I, I don't know what it is. I, I need somebody that can see and write it out for me because I'm, I'm about to try and create a foundation. So I need to say what my legacy is, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> Sounds like you're very much in the present and you and you, you live I'm in the present. Don't you? Yeah, I really yeah, yeah. meeting all these sheikhs has taught me, you know, they are so present. It's scary. Yeah. 
Tell us about your final items. I just want to say, yeah, that, that you know, you meet these people and they remember everything of you. And if you, they'll ask about you, they never forget about you. I meet people all the time. I've forgotten their name in five minutes. It's just like, I, you know, it's just a Western problem. We can't be present. And so that becomes, okay, I've got to practice. I've got to try and be present. And photography helps me that a lot. You know, it really does. And yeah. um, the final thing is um it's a quote from Sidi Mon Habib and it's it's a thing I always finish my presentations with and so it's it's uh, he wrote a diwan they were a collection of poems that he wrote and they're all uh guidance for the spiritual path and this is just two couplets out of one of his great qasidas and he said for if a person truly knew the worth of his heart he would give all he had without hesitation. And if a person came to know the bliss within his soul, he would shed a tear of joy with every breath he took. Yeah, and it's such a beautiful, I mean, that is something to aim for, you know, to aspire to. It's just because that's what our journey is about, you know, yeah. to get to that. I, I realized yesterday I was talking to somebody yesterday and, he was laughing about how we used to always complain about everything, you know, and he just said, you know, we used to complain about it. He said, we used to complain about the Wahhabis and now look what happened after that. We should have said, we should. <laughs> and it's just like, if you complain about things, they get worse, right? And they'll get worse and worse until you start thanking God for whatever happens is perfectly fine. <laughs> I think that's very timely with our recent politicians in, in Britain and America. Yeah. You think the next one can't get any worse. <laughs> so careful what you wish for. Yeah, so we really need to be just more grateful, really. I think we, you know, we live in societies where we have so much. I mean, of course, there are things not working, but we have a lot to be grateful. If you look around what's happening around the world, really. Yeah. So in our final few moments together, yeah. see the... Um, I was just wondering if you were to meet a younger Peter in his <laughs> in the early twenties, yeah. What would you say to him, or what advice would you offer him? Oh, tell him to stop worrying about stuff. You know, worrying is about I've learned is all about what if. What if this happens? What if that happens? When something does happen, you deal with it, right? You don't even think about it. You go into the mode and deal with it. Emergency. So what you waste a lot of time worrying about stuff. And I think that's really important for people from this society. There's so much anxiety and fear about everything. Yeah. So definitely that would be one advice. Try and be more patient, you know, but I think photography really has been teaching me about patience and stuff. Yeah. And then being grateful. I mean, that's, you know, that's, you know, I said that it's really, we have a lot to be grateful for. You know? Yeah. And and the first point you mentioned, I think, resonates so much because um, I guess ultimately it's accepting that the way things happen is the way they're supposed to happen, isn't yes. it? And and that's part of God's plan. And Absolutely. it's that, you know, in our limited wisdom at the, at the time, we might think it's good or bad, but it was supposed to happen that way. And just that learning of that acceptance that, you know, inshallah, there will be benefit or there'll be a reason for why things have gone a certain way and i guess because often that anxiety and that worry is is about 
you know, you want things, to, your expectations, you want yeah. things to go, and and sometimes yeah. just being accepting, you know, you make your efforts, you try your best, and if things are going down a certain path, then that's the way it's destined to be, and uh, inshallah, that 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 will be benefit. Reading but you know, that just it's reading the signs as I started off with, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. um, you know, um... okay. So, last few questions, Sidi is, uh, so a you're on the desert island um i mean how do you think you will cope on a desert island and you know you'll be on your own and with that solitude do you think yeah, you'll do well or do you think you'll while. struggle yeah it'd be quite nice for a while i think as long as it's warm <laughs> <laughs> as we talk you know during the winter in britain which yeah, is yeah. miserable and grey but alhamdulillah <laughs> And what book, apart from the Quran, would you take with you to this desert island? Yeah, I was thinking about that. It's really... I've so many books that I love, but I probably would take The Lives of Man because it really does teach you about what's going to happen next and, you know, the stages that you go through. It's like a manual. Oh, it would either be that or Cinema Mahmoud Beeb's D1. I mean, they're both books very, very important to me. Uh, I love Cinema Mahmoud Beeb's D1. It's got so much wisdom in it. Um, so I don't know. I'd be torn between the two, actually. I li- at least with his D1, I could sing it, and there's benefit from singing the Casitas. So maybe, maybe it would be that. <laughs> Beautiful. And what if you could take a luxury item with you? Yeah, from this, no, this, is, this is a difficult question. Is it considered that I'll have my cameras with me anyway? <laughs> <laughs> you would. Uh, I think when we spoke before, you said that's part of you, so it's. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> then, of... then the obvious thing is like my tea set, you know, and a lot of tea, so I could stop in the afternoon. I'd I'd have to have a goat or something. I could get milk. I only take a tiny bit of milk, but I need a little bit of milk. Yeah, so I just have my bone china tea set. So you can you can have that in endless supplies of nice organic tea. Yes, that'd be wonderful. <laughs> not just PG, not just PG tips. No, no, no. <laughs> well, Sidi, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real honor, a blessing, and privilege to hear uh, about your story and uh, your reflections and, and your lessons uh, that you've learned in many many decades of. Um, your photography and your commitment to the Muslim Ummah and, and may Allah Subhanahu continue to give you the energy, the strength, Amen. the passion um, uh, and the blessing to continue the work that you're doing. I know that you're still traveling and you're still yeah, really out there. So um, alhamdulillah, it's been a real honor and privilege and thank you so much for sharing some of your insights in your Desert Island yeah, Gems. Thank you for inviting me. It was really, it's good to, it's good, you know, to reflect on I think, you know, on our journeys in life, it's really important to sit and reflect and why did this happen? Why did that happen? And try and make sense of it, you know, because God made sense of it. We have to just see what the plan was. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be lots of inspiration and opportunity to re- for other people to reflect as well on, on oh, your yeah. own experiences. So Jazakallah khair. Thank you so much. Assalamu alaikum and uh, keep us all in your prayers and du'as. Thank you. And remember me, okay, inshallah, in your prayers. Thank you. Bye.